good things about the uh, XM show I used to do with Jeff. Well, one of the bad things was I had to do it four times a week, whether I felt like it or not, to get on the air and talk for two hours and uh, have something to say. And often I really didn't have anything to say. And maybe we had talked about the same thing we we're talking about over and over again. But the good thing was that, you know, you had to start talking and by talking, you eventually got somewhere interesting, usually got somewhere interesting if you weren't too outline focused and we didn't have too many topical things to talk about. We get somewhere interesting. I got a tweet a couple months ago that somebody was saying something about the XM show with me on it. And some guy said that was horrible. You'd start, they'd start talking about, you know, some NFL games coming up and list would go off on a 10 minute tangent talking about the solar system. The, the beauty of that criticism was it was actually accurate because <laughs> that's the kind of stuff I did, but I liked doing that and it would get somewhere interesting. I thought so, you know, the bad thing was I had to do it. The good thing was even if you had no idea you were on the air, you had to keep talking and you got somewhere interesting eventually. And I was just thinking about that because felt like doing a podcast. I feel like I just am not getting a lot of work done. I'm working on a piece for chrysalis.com. I, I talked about it on this podcast last week about, you know, the people that can't be wrong because even if they're wrong, they just you know, retreat to the fact that they're, they got their money in good. They had the probability on their side, even though it didn't work out. And I'm writing about that, but it's a bit of a slog. I had a couple other pieces that I didn't publish that I wrote. And I'm feeling this kind of malaise work-wise. Like, what am I, what's the point? I mean, I, I didn't do a podcast two weeks ago. I did one last week. And because, you know, especially the chrysalis.com stuff and the podcast, like it's free. So I don't really, you know, I, I'm not really on the hook to anybody. And the uh, Real Man Sports, I, I try to produce some stuff based around the games because I have more paying subscribers. But for this stuff, I feel like, you know, if I really wanted to, I could take a month off. Maybe I will at some point, but I want to work. I, I want to do stuff. I'll get into my personal life in a minute, but I want to have a, a work life. I want to have stuff that I'm creating, but why? Like why you just want to have stuff you create. You just want to have a body of work for the sake of it. Not really, right? You don't want just some shit work you're putting out there just to have a body of work. And it's weird being, I mean, I don't feel retired. I mean, I'm working pretty much, generally as much as I was before we sold Rotowire. But just the last couple of weeks, I felt this sort of work malaise, like what's the point? And, you know, what am I doing and why am I doing it? And so I wanted to do a podcast today, even though I didn't have anything specific to say, because I started thinking about the XM show and how, you know, I, I had nothing to say for that either. And that somehow we would get somewhere and maybe that'll be the case with this one or maybe not. I had another idea, which would be extremely unpopular, but I want to do it because it's just, it's so compelling to me. I was going to get like a whiteboard and do a video. Maybe I could do that as a regular thing. Scott Adams, who I'm going to get into a tweet he posted, some interesting discussion around that. But he always had a whiteboard and he would like do little, you know, I don't know, little podcasts with his whiteboard and illustrate stuff while he was going. I was thinking of getting a whiteboard and doing the tree three one that nobody likes, but getting it so that people would get it because the tree three, you know, was that number. It's extremely, extremely, extremely large number. Like you, you don't understand how large that number is and how fascinating it is. 
and what it actually means and why I actually think it's the reason AI will never overtake human beings. It will in, you know, in certain areas, certain basic areas, but I don't think it will really be a threat to human ingenuity and will augment it to some extent, but the humans will always be, the human faculty of creativity will always be irreplaceable by AI, in my opinion. And Naval Ravikant had a great quote. He said, if, you, if you're the kind of person who believes AI will replace you, then it surely will. <laughs> so I think that's accurate. But I wanted to get a whiteboard and do the tree three, generate that number. It's not, I can't really generate tree three so much as generate Graham's number and then show that it's so much smaller than tree three. And Graham's number is just, if you haven't really thought about this or gone down this rabbit hole, Graham's number is a number that you have no, you can't even imagine how big it is. You can't even wrap your mind over how big it is. This guy, Tim Urban, who does the wait, but why did a series on numbers and it culminated with Graham's number of really big numbers. And he said, if you had asked him like, you know, some years ago, like what the biggest number he could name was, it would be like a Googleplex to the Googleplex power, which is kind of a big number. But it's like zero compared to Graham's number. And Graham's number is like zero compared to tree three. And the way they're generated is just so fascinating. You know, it's, it says a lot about, in my opinion, it says a lot about the fundamental axioms of the universe, fundamental axioms of life, those two numbers. So I want to do a whiteboard version because... Just audio is almost impossible to understand. And even the article, which I felt like I laid it out pretty well, people glaze over it. You know, I, I look at certain concepts that I'm not familiar with in articles, medical stuff sometimes, or coding stuff. And I'll just be like, glaze over. You know, I don't, I don't know what they're talking about. I don't get it. So I just kind of skip, skip it. And I feel like when people see math, they, a lot of people that's not, you know, two plus two, they just glaze over, skip it, don't want to deal with it. But this, I can assure you, is super easy math. It's not even like, it's not even algebra, let alone calculus, let alone that bullshit that Nassim Taleb is doing, whether he's full of shit or not, I, I can't tell. And this is very, very simple math. So I wanted to do that and, and succeed in explaining it because nobody seems to care. And I, I know the only reason they could not care is because they're not understanding it. And the only reason they're not understanding it, because it's easy to understand, really, is that they see the numbers and they kind of just check out, don't focus. So I do have the, the published tree three in my uh, chrysalis.substack.com, also on chrysalis.com. If you, if you really just pay attention for five minutes, it's like, it'll blow your mind. It'll blow your mind. Graham's number alone will blow your mind. And just getting back to a Googleplex to the Googleplex power, Googleplex is, you know, Google is a one with 100 zeros and a Googleplex is a one with a Google zeros. And you can write a Google 10 to the 100th power, same thing. And you can write a Googleplex 10 to the Googleth power or 10 to the 10 to the 100, right? 10 to the 100 is a Google. So 10 to that is a Googleplex. So you see 10 to the 10 to the 100 is a Googleplex. And so a Googleplex to the Googleplex power is just 10 to the 10 to the 100 to the 10 to the 10 to the 100. And of course, 100 is 10 to the 2. So it's just 10 to the 10 to the 10 to the 2 to the 10 to the 10 to the 10 to the 2. That's Googleplex to the Googleplex power. And when you reduce it to a power tower, it's not that formidable. It's only eight high, you know, with six tens and two twos. The, when you start to get into some of these other numbers, you get power towers that are a trillion high, you know. And so Googleplex to the Googleplex power seems very, very large. And it's obviously very large and just there's nothing you could use it for in the universe. But in terms of representing it mathematically, it's, it's nothing. So these numbers are much, 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 much bigger 
And, you know, tree three makes Graham's number like Graham's number makes Googleplex. It's, it's just dwarfs it in a way that it's hard to wrap your mind around. So I want to do a little whiteboard thing with that, that I feel like I'll make it so simple that you know, anybody who's done fifth grade math could understand it. And I, I, to me, it's like the most fascinating thing in the world. I just like thinking about it. I just like thinking about the way these numbers are built and how just absolutely vast they are and what it says about building a number mechanically and building a number through a game. So that was just one idea I had, but I don't even have a whiteboard yet. I was thinking of buying one. I don't know. It might be ridiculous. might not, but if anybody can experiment, it's me since it's my own. I don't have, I don't have any partners that'll say, no, don't do that. It's going to, it's going to ruin the whole thing. It's up, it's, it's up to me. So maybe I'll do it. So there was that. Um, but I don't know. I'm just feeling a bit of malaise in general. I, I feel like, you know, on the one hand, a lot of revelations are coming out about what's going on. I think the excess mortality is pretty obvious. I, some people are denying it, but I don't, I don't think for much longer. And then there's going to be the what's it caused by? Oh, we don't know. And blah, blah, blah. I went over that a lot last week. And I read this article. Can't remember where it was, where, where I found it. I found it on Zero Hedge, but it's not on Zero Hedge. They sometimes um, cross post from other websites. So this article on Zero Hedge is a two-part article about sort of what's, you know, this whole great reset thing that everybody knows about. And I, I agree with this. And I've mentioned this before. He has different numbers than me, but I, I just made up my numbers. But he said like, you know, 10% of people know what's going on more or less, and they're vocal about it. They are objecting to it. And okay. And then 20% more also know what's going on. They're just a little bit less vocal. Don't want to lose their jobs or whatever, but they, they also kind of know what's going on. And, and then like there's, you know, he estimates 40% of people are sort of not really sure. I mean, nobody's totally sure, but like, you know, completely not sure whether the narrative's true or the, or it's totally a lie, but they're sort of open to being persuaded. They're not identified with the narrative. They haven't drunk the Kool-Aid. They, they, you know, probably took the vaccine because they just weren't especially suspicious and thought it was the right thing to do, but they're not really invested in their identity around this kind of thing. And then 30% of people, like, they're just totally invested in the mass formation psychosis. They just literally had a lot of anxiety, and the virus came along, and, you know, this guy, Matthias Desmet, describes mass formation psychosis. It happened, you know, in other societies where there was societal collapse. Nazi Germany is the obvious example, but not the only one. And basically, there's free-floating anxiety, the idea that you know, you have kind of a meaningless job, you're online all the time, you're not connected enough to real people, fewer people have families. Even if you have a, a nuclear family, you might have moved away from your extended family. So you, you just, you don't have that much meaning in your life. There's a lot of uh, disconnection. And so you have a sense of anxiety and it's kind of a, un, a nebulous anxiety. And then this virus comes along and all these measures and suddenly your life has important purpose, protect the vulnerable and wear your mask and get your shot and be in solidarity with everybody. And, you know, and, and, and people really attach themselves to that because they can pin the anxiety on the virus. They can pin the remedy uh, to the anxiety on all these measures. And it just becomes really important. And they now have this sort of cavernous anxiety and doubt that they can paper over with these new beliefs. I talked about the fixation of belief before. And so there's these true believers that just simplified their world 
to just understand everything in this very conventional way. And those people, I, I think, are kind of lost causes. I mean, there might be a point where things got so bad, they saw something that was so disturbing that it snapped them out of it. But you're not going to you know, convince them talking to them or reasoning with them or debating them. And sometimes they pose as reasonable. They'll ask you questions and stuff. And then like later on, they'll be like, that guy's fucking crazy. And, you know, even though you're perfectly civil with them and entertaining their questions, but, but either way, so that's the 30%. Just forget about them. Just, just, you you got to cut them loose. There's nothing you can do. Um, There's the people that would, you know, rat you out to somebody else that you weren't wearing your mask or that you were unvaccinated or they were trying to alienate you from your, the rest of your family. I mean, just forget about it. Uh, that ship has sailed. And then the 30%, you know, if, if there's 10% speaking out and 20% kind of silent, encourage the, tw- the other 20% to, I would think, say something. Don't, you know, be complicit even by you know, not, you know, identify yourself to some extent, the extent you can, you know, don't let the other 40% in the middle think that you're one of them, let them know that, you know, it's just tough because you might mistake a 40% from a 30% from the, from the mass formation psychosis, then you can have some interpersonal awkwardness or worse consequences. But I would just say those 20%, you know, please say something, don't, don't go along to get along. And then the 40%, those are the people to reach, right? Because I think when they move over and as the information comes out, those are the people that are going to move over. Then you're going to have some accountability, some things changing. Now, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know, you know, whether there's a Nuremberg trial or whether there's some scapegoats like Fauci or somebody gets put in jail and that's that. I don't know. I have no idea. There, I've read some dark stuff where like, you know, this whole escalation in Ukraine is sort of putting nuclear war in the back burner just in case like things really fall apart in the narrative. They can just kind of shift to that. <laughs> Nuka City, that will be the, you know, that will be the only thing people are talking about. People aren't going to be talking about uh, vaccine liability if there's a, a nuke that goes off in a couple of cities. I'm not saying that's likely. I'm just, I don't want to make people panic people. But, you know, I mean, people do commit suicide, right? You know, they, they're, if things get bad enough, they do that. I mean, it's kind of like a suicide of society in a way. And I don't, I'm not saying like nuclear war where it's all out. I just mean where something gets pretty crazy. But yeah, that's pretty dark. Um, the possibility of that I don't, I, I don't. It's not unlikely because they wouldn't ever do it. It's not unlikely because oh, they're that's so immoral, that's so crazy. As I said, people commit suicide. So if you were at a point where you were, you know, the things had gone so poorly for you, and you know the the jig was up, you were about to get called to account. I mean. If they didn't do it, it wouldn't be for moral reasons. It would be because people didn't go along who, you know, were necessary in the chain and weren't implicated or the, uh, you know. So I, it, I like after the Epstein, the whole Epstein thing where they were powerful people, politicians, Bill Gates, abusing underage girls on his island, like the idea that, oh, they would never do that when you know that's just factually true. It's kind of hard to sell, you know, the things that have been done in wars, the atrocities. I read something. I'm not even going to say this on the podcast. I, I read something so disturbing, you know, the thing, and you know, it's everything, every atrocity, anything you can imagine, you know, being done to people, being done to people's kids in front of them has happened. It's all happened before in human history. And, you know, we know about Nazi Germany. We know about Russia in the 20th century. We know about China in the 20th century. I mean, there's, there's so many of them. So like the idea that, oh, they would never do that. Um, I don't think that's good reasoning. I don't think that's sound. So 
yeah, that's just going down a, a dark rabbit hole. But we we don't. That's not. That's just one set of thoughts. You know, I have an, I have a parallel set of thoughts where I'm like, all oh, this is just a huge bluff. There is no great reset. There is no nuclear risk. It's just them trying to keep you in fear and not get on with your life and and just to accept um, very bad terms. You know, a way of negotiating is to be like, here's something horrible that we might do. And here's something that we'd actually like to do. And the, here's something we'd like to do. If that were the only thing on the table, you'd say, hell no, we don't want that. That's not, it's not worthwhile for me. But if you show the hor horrific possibility, then the eating the bugs and owning nothing doesn't sound so bad. So sometimes I just think it's a big bluff to get you to sort of relinquish, you know, the stupid example is your gas stove, like relinquish it voluntarily, you know, stop driving your turtle combustion engine car voluntarily. You know, stop eating meat voluntarily. It's all just a big bluff. They can't make you. So they just make it seem like it's going to be inevitable. I think inevitability is part of a psyop, right? Like you can't win. It's inevitable. And then you just kind of give in. It's kind of like the company policy thing. Oh, it's just company policy. Sorry. And you're like, oh, if it's company policy, I guess I'll just hang up the phone and not fight this. It's kind of like that. So sometimes I just think it's a giant bluff and just, you know, do your thing, live the way you want to live, resist it. And sometimes I think, no, like they went too far. They overplayed their hand. And now that they can't hide the excess death and questions are going to start getting asked, you know, what, what's the next insane thing they have to do um, to avoid accountability? So I'm just, you know, I'm not sure. I don't know what the reality is. And then I don't know what the reality is of, should I even be thinking about this stuff? You know, should I just be going about my personal life? and living my life. But the thing is, the thing I'm interested in is this stuff. I'm interested in this because I feel like, you know, we sold Rotowire. I have a reasonably comfortable life in Portugal where it's fairly cheap to live. I'll get into the, uh, the properties we have that are just going nowhere. And it's been extremely frustrating to me in Portugal. But I used to have anxiety about like, how am I going to make a living? How am I going to, uh, you know, have a house I can live in, a decent place to live? And support a family. I thought used to be my anxiety when I was in my twenties and I didn't have a job until, you know, mid to late twenties, a real job instead of just uh, freelance stuff. And now my anxiety is more like, okay, that's not it. Right. So what, what interests me? Well, I mean, I just think what interests me is kind of fundamental, which is, you know, things like, you know, how do I take care of my health? How do I take care of my finances? How do I take care of my relationships? Like I like watching football, right? I still like watching football. I still like going to shoot baskets with Sasha and I've got a funny thing about Sasha uh, in a minute, but you know, I, I like doing stuff, but like, you know, in terms of my focus, in terms of work, in terms of what my focus is, it's like financial health relationships. It's just those three things. That's, that's what's sort of fundamental, right? You have good relationships, you're financially sound and you as healthy as you can be, you're going to have a good life. And then you can pursue all the, the, you know, the enjoyable stuff that you like doing. So as I said, like when I was younger, the, the stuff that seemed fundamental was I have to make a living. I was young, so I wasn't really worried about health. And I was single and, you know, I had time to have relationships. So I was just like, how do I make a living? And fantasy sports was a weird way to do it, but it, it worked out okay. But now my focus is like, I don't want that. You know, it's important in my life, freedom, choice of what to do, what to focus on, free speech, creativity to be taken away from me. So now I'm, I'm focused on this. So I think about this, but sometimes I think, you know, maybe I shouldn't be thinking about this so much. Maybe my life would be better if I 
just focused on some specific interest. You know, I used to focus on fantasy baseball and football intensively and basketball. That was my specific interest in running Rotowire and helping grow that company. And that was it. That was, you know, it wasn't it, but it was, you know, I still read other stuff, but that was a, a big focus. And maybe I just need to find another focus like that and just forget about all this shit because it's going to happen or not happen. I'm going to deal with it or, or not deal with it. And maybe it's just a source of anxiety, stress. But on the other hand, if it's real, if this is really something that needs to be focused on and people like me are like, ah, oh, this is too stressful. I don't want to deal with this. I want to do something else. I don't want to even look at this. Then, you know, who's going to communicate to other people? Who's going to wake other people up? Who's going to, you know, point other people to, hey, I think, you know, this is something we might object to, something we might uh, not be okay with. So, yeah, so I don't know. I don't know. I'm just sort of in a, in a limbo state, I guess, because I've, I've done this for a year. I've sort of said what was important to me. And I've gotten a lot of DMs and emails and stuff saying, oh, I really appreciate that. I'm glad someone else is on the same page as I am. And, you know, or this, you know, this kind of opened my eyes to this. I'm, I'm glad. What do you think of this? I've got, I had great, great feedback. In fact, the listeners of this podcast are excellent. I had a segment on addiction. I had a guy who DM'd me and, you know, told me he was an alcoholic and explained a lot of stuff that he, you know, a lot of his observations. It was, I just get very intelligent, thoughtful feedback. So I feel like that's good. But on the other hand, it's like, where are we going with this? What's, what are we going to do? You know, is it necessary to do anything? I think about it from this, the standpoint of, you know, being enlightened, an enlightened person, which I feel like I understand some of it. I'm not an enlightened person. And that's, I mean, we're all enlightened people in, a, in one sense. You know, the idea that you know, enlightenment, not enlightenment, that duality doesn't really exist. Like there's a moment where you're enlightened and the second that you reach for all your attachments, you sort of forget your your natural state of enlightenment but an enlightened person would just process their emotions and then whatever they felt was important they would express you know and whatever they felt was worth doing they would do you know you can't sort of map it out from your your fearful unenlightened state and say oh well if i were enlightened i'd probably be doing this or thinking this it doesn't work like that right i mean it it's literally being up for the moment that you're in and feeling what you're feeling and then acting, you know, and thinking and acting and expressing the way you would do it. And you can't simulate that. So I sometimes think, you know, okay, I just got to let go of it and just let that take over. And I guess that's, that's the mission, right? Just to let the truth take over, whatever, it, wherever it takes you, right? Whether it takes you further into this or away from it, it's just whatever really needs to be said, needs to be said. All right. There was that a couple other things that came up. So there was a just yesterday, there was a, a guy who went undercover for Project Veritas. And they do these videos where they have a guy you know, recording somebody who they're, I guess, on a date with, taking some guy out for drinks and start asking him about his job. And they kind of spill the beans. And basically, like, this guy went undercover and got a Pfizer executive to essentially confess that Pfizer is tinkering with the viruses to cause mutations in order to create preemptive vaccines for those and sell more vaccines. But it was just odd because the guy was spilling the beans so thoroughly, so quickly, and exactly in the way you'd want if you were trying to bust him over drinks. And it seems like he wouldn't like, he'd have to know he can't say this stuff. I mean, the huge consequences for him. So, you know, why would he just be like saying all this stuff right away like this? It seemed like almost like was Pfizer, 
so there's two guys. So this guy, uh, Majid Nawaz, who's a British guy who very interesting character, but he's been kind of sounding the alarm on a lot of things for a while. And he, you know, he was saying, be careful, you know, is this project Veritas busting Pfizer or Pfizer sort of busting project Veritas and like getting this guy to say all this bullshit and everyone goes with the story and they're like, ha, see Pfizer's doing that. And then Pfizer can say, no, that was just a hoax. Like, and then when real, real reporting comes out, they're like, oh, is this a hoax like that? fake project veritas thing you know you're you're in this sort of information warfare environment it's a jungle out there like what do you believe but then jordan shack tell this other guy i follow and is a good journalist he said you know some people are so blackpilled that they immediately dismiss all good news as hoax yes the veritas thing was very real this is an organization with a decade-long track record of breaking major stories in this exact fashion yes pfizer is that evil so good point right i mean just because it seems like too much reveal that you, then you'd expect and like, you know, on a silver platter to hold them to account, that doesn't mean it's false. So there's, you know, I see both sides of that debate, actually. I see like, be careful. It's an information jungle out there. And if something seems a little bit suspect, like why is this guy just spilling the beans so clearly on camera so quickly? Doubt it. On the other hand, like you can't just doubt everything. If something's evidence, it's evidence. And I just think we have to tread a little bit carefully. We're in a very... Uh, treacherous information environment. So, um, and I, I've gotten into it, you know, um, one of the uh, listeners, um, Emmett Peppers posts on Twitter and uh, he has his own, uh, video cast and podcast. And it's, uh, usually on Tesla and investing. And I recommend it. I did it once I was on it once. Um, he was saying like, you know, okay, fine. There's all these excess deaths, but how do we know it's not just sort of from COVID, right? Because, you had COVID, you recovered, but maybe it did some permanent damage. And two years later, it's from COVID. It's not actually the vaccine. You know, how, how do we know? He's not saying it's not the vaccine. He's just saying, how do we know? And I think we don't really know, like, you know, metaphysical certainty and not even, you know, absolute certainty in a normal sense. It could be, right? And he pointed out, if this is from a lab, it could be worse than a normal virus. But in general, the way viruses work is the way COVID works. I mean, coronaviruses are not new and you get sick, you feel like shit, you recover, Sometimes there's lingering effects like long COVID. There's long flu, right? There's sometimes people get a flu and it takes them a couple months before they're really 100% or a cold sometimes lingers and they have, you know, symptoms, weird coughs that they can't get rid of for a couple of months or whatever. So we kind of know how those work. We don't really know how mRNA injections work long-term in the body. And we do know for a fact that mRNA injections definitely killed some people, right? Like there's definite... Somebody got the shot. They dropped dead a day later. I mean, there's definitely some people, this is the minority, right? I think most of the deaths are, there's some gap between the, when they got the shot and the death. So it's causation is a little bit more tricky, but we know it definitely kills people. Uh, we know COVID kills people in the acute phase. If they're old and sick, it doesn't really kill people very, very rarely if they're, you know, not old and not very sick. Um, it's extremely rare that it kills people. And if it does kill people, it's in the acute phase, right? It's not like it doesn't kill people a month later. There's not that's like, you know, 2020, except for the COVID deaths, there was not some excess unexplained deaths in mid 2020 that there should have been if COVID, you know, six months later was killing people who had it, you know, in February. It should have, there should have been excess deaths in November of 2020, non-COVID excess deaths, if that were the case, but there weren't, right? That the, the non-COVID excess deaths started right around when the vaccine was rolled out. So I think it's not impossible, but it's very unlikely as an explanation uh, why this excess death is happening. 
And I do think, you know, I, I respect if someone's not 100% sure. I don't think you should be 100%, but not 97% sure, 99% sure that it's the vaccine causing these excess deaths. I just want to get people to acknowledge there are these excess deaths. I think that's getting pretty much undeniable. And then once we have that, we need to investigate. And we can't investigate the way that we did when Damar Hamlin collapses with a heart attack and people are saying, oh, it's definitely not the vax. Or when Grant Wall collapses, you know, dies of a heart attack in the press booth. Oh, no, no, whatever it is, it's not the vax. It might be Qatari assassination, but it's not the vax. I think we have to say it might well be the vax. I mean, to me, that's just by far the most obvious case. And I mentioned this on prior podcasts, just the way the lab leak was the most, by far the best accounting of the, uh, you know, of the way the virus spread and where it came from and where the lab, I mean, it just made way more sense. I think it's the same here, but fine. You don't, you don't agree with that conclusion or you don't think it's as likely as I do. I just want them to investigate. You know, maybe they'll find something else. Maybe there'll be a great explanation that is better than vaccine injury for the cause of these excess deaths. Maybe there will be. I don't think so, but there could be. Just as, you know, when I thought it was a lab leak, uh, you know, a few, few months in, I thought it was like, you know, nine to one, 10 to one, that it was a lab leak. But I was still open to that one. If they, somebody made a great explanation of how it came from somewhere else and then arrived in Wuhan, um, I was open to it, but that never came. And I don't see one yet. It's not climate change. It's not Qatari assassination. COVID was better than those, but I just, I think we would have seen a lot of excess death, non-COVID excess death in the fall of 2020. And we didn't. So I think that's tough. And just the way we know viruses work and the way we know the vaccine has, in fact, killed some people. There's some other weird stuff going on. There's the uh, fact that, you know, Bill Gates is out there saying, you know, this virus, this vaccine didn't work to stop the spread, doesn't last very long, especially in old people. It didn't help very much. We need to get new vaccines. And yet the CDC and WHO were just acting like you got to get your booster. One of them said, get your monkeypox vaccine. I think it was the CDC. It says you can get the monkeypox vaccine at the same time as your flu and COVID. This is from January 20th. The CDC, they're still trying to get you to get the monkeypox vaccine. It's just so bizarre that they're, they're still shilling that. So we're just in a very strange world. And I think there is that 30% of people that are never going to let it go. And I don't know. I just feel very much in limbo. Anyway, that's all about that stuff. It's my personal life. So we bought these two properties. They're very, very cheap by US standards. But when you buy these sort of ruins, you need to get permission to do it from the local municipalities. And one of them was in this uh, area that's sort of a, uh, it's a, what are they, a World Heritage Site, UNESCO Heritage Site. And so I, we knew we need a lot of permissions and that's just dragging. And it's, it's super frustrating because the, the municipality is actually green lighting it, but now the water department, because it's on this uh, kind of this waterfall behind it now saying, oh no, you can't put the bathroom there and you can't do that. You know, it's like, it's so just incredible, you know, the, the hoops you have to jump through, you know, six different versions of the plans and there's still, there's one problem and, and, you know, maybe initially this was a good thing. You know, Portugal is trying to take care of its environment. You know, doesn't want McMansions going up. They don't want the uh, coastlines or the nice natural beauty of the place destroyed. I, I get that. I think that's valid. But you have all these bureaucrats individually doing their job. Probably most of them, maybe some of them are petty, but most of them without malice. But collectively, it just becomes suffocating. I mean, they're basically suffocating people's dreams of building, restoring a nice old house and having a place for their family to go, you know, and Sasha's going to be 11 in the next couple of weeks. And then, you know, when is he going to be done when she's 13 or 14, she doesn't want to go there anymore. You know, 
51, going to be 52 in May. Like, you know, time is of the, you don't have infinite time. We, we bought the first one in August of 2020. We agreed on the price. It took so long to close that. You know, now it's January of 23. And this is, so that's, that's the UNESCO site. We bought that one in March of 21. But the other one we got in August of 20, we agreed on a price, didn't close till June of 21 for all this other red tape with the six different heirs to the house that all needed very little money, but split it and get them all to get in the same place was very hard. And then that house, right? That should have been easy because it was just in the middle of the country. It wasn't like a heritage site. But after we bought it, they decided to change that area to a nature preserve. So that involved a whole bunch of other agencies. So then we had to like, I don't even know what the fuck's going on. So now it's like, again, January 23, and we don't even have the plans approved. They sort of approved the plans in November, but they needed some additions, amendments or something. So the architect sent those right away. And then, you know, now it's January and they haven't responded. So I wrote kind of a scathing letter. I, the architects are great. They're working hard, but just like, look, I mean, what the fuck are we, why are we even doing this? This is a joke. Like, this is not even a realistic thing. And they were very sympathetic. They were like, I hear you. I'm embarrassed, you know, for the way the country's behaving. This is just, the bureaucracy is just out of control. You know, we're going to do everything we can, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I'm at the point where I'm like, this shit doesn't happen soon. Like I may just, you know, one of them is so cheap. It's not even worth selling. It's, it's a nice piece of land. It has some fig trees. Um, but the other one, it's kind of cheap, but we could sell it because it's in that sort of, area that's that people would want to buy and just get the fuck out you know and then portugal apparently has passed some law we have a portuguese neighbor in our building who's pretty based and she warns us she's like i'll tell you when it's time to go you know if things get bad and she said i would go if i could leave she can't leave because she has family here she's like they just passed a law that or they're passing a law that um, is amending the constitution the portuguese constitution has a lot of rights for the people just like you know maybe not as good as the u.s one but it's pretty good and they're changing that so that in the event of another pandemic, they can now lock down. And because they, because under the current constitution, the lockdowns were ruled unconstitutional. So, you know, I love it here. I love uh, my life here. A lot of uh, places we love going. It's a very uh, peaceful place, very safe place. Portuguese are kind, kind of mind their own business. They're, you know, they can be compliant, but they don't really get into your business. Uh, they're respectful, they're nice people. But fuck, you know, like if, if we don't have a place to sort of retreat to from the city, which is also kind of a dream to have a, a place in the country to grow vegetables and have people over and cook on the grill and, you know, have a nice place with a, with a swimming pool and a sauna and be healthy. Then, you know, I want to go. I, I, that's what I wanted. And it was affordable here, but they just will not green light it. And then, you know, politically things are not good but you know if you if you walk around outside everything's fine you know if it's, everything's normal that's you know things can change in a hurry the next time they manufacture an emergency so maybe that's contributed to my malaise the sense of getting stuck sort of not progressing on these things um i, I wrote that thing you know get time on your side one of the things where time's on your side is when you're building you know a, a house you know to for your family that you're in the country beautiful peaceful place to be as time goes on you you know it's closer to being done and that's not even getting started. So yeah, I got to figure out something on that front. Um, personally though, I've been going to the track three times a week. I talked about that earlier, but then Heather was like, Oh, there's new yoga place, which is super nice and clean and upscale. looks like an LA yoga place just opened up and they had this like really cheap introductory month long deal for like 40 bucks as much as you want to go. 
So I took it and I've been going to that. So I've been going to yoga Tuesday and Thursday. I've been running Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then I've been like walked, you know, an hour and a half to get a haircut and back, you know, up these hills, this place where we used to live. It was 40 minutes each way. Then I've been like walking to pick up Sasha and like, I've been getting too much exercise. I don't know. Like, I, I like, what, what is it for? You know, I'm 51. I'm, I don't need to be this jacked, you know, do my pushups. It started because I was like out of shape and I was like, well, I'll just do 10 pushups every other day just because that's asking nothing of myself. And then it was 20 and then it was 40 in a row. And then I started fasting and I was like, oh, I can eat a salad or a soup or something while I'm fasting. But then I just started completely fasting for like 40 hours in a row. And then I was doing 50 push-ups in a row and then 51 because I'm 51. So I'm fasting a day a week doing 51 push-ups. So that was it. Then I was walking, but that was all. Then I started going to the track and I'm adding in the yoga. And then I talked to this doctor this summer who was like, he was talking about the spike protein. If any of you guys have uh, taken the uh, mRNA jab and are concerned about it, he seemed to think, and I've seen this elsewhere, that fasting for four days, the autophagy that that generates would be good and cleaning out like misfolded proteins, bad spike protein, whatever it would help clean it out. So don't know if it's true, but he was a very knowledgeable doctor, but he told me just regardless, even though I didn't take it fasting for four days, every three months really resets the immune system, really cleans out any garbage that could accumulate and cause problems. So I've been doing that too. So in, next week I'll do a four day fast. I mean, every three months, a four day fast, every week, a one day fast or like 40 hours. And so I'm just becoming this uh, health nut, but like that shit isn't like a life, right? Like, I mean, I don't mind. We'll see how long I keep it up. feels good to be healthy. My, my uh, tolerance for walking up many flights of stairs and stuff is much better now than it was a few months ago. But I mean, that's not sufficient, right? Like being just some workout freak, unless that's totally your, your job and you're selling, yeah, I don't know, subscriptions and consultations. That's fine. You know I mean? If that's your job, it's fine, but that's not sufficient. You know, I still feel like, you know, that's just uh, something I'm doing, but maybe I'm, I'm going too far. Um, the other day, uh, so we ordered, we, we fixed up Sasha's room. Her, her bedroom was kind of shit. We had the same room since she was six and now she's almost 11. So we finally got rid of all the baby stuff and furniture and got her some new stuff. And of course it wasn't Ikea, but it's this uh, other place, um, La Redoute or something, La Redoute. And you got to put together the stuff, but like the, the reviews on that were like, you know, I, I'm an engineer and this was, you know, the hardest thing I've ever had to do to put this together. So like we have a handyman and we need to fix a bunch of stuff. So we had him put together like the armoire, but Sasha, then after he left the desk arrives and she's like, I want to do this with you. I want to put this together. And Heather's like, don't do it. Don't do it. It's going to be a disaster. You guys are going to screw it up. I'm like, I'm not that bad. I put together the Ikea stuff. So we, and I don't really have a real screwdriver. I have this like Leatherman tool that has a screwdriver on it, but it's, it's not really a great screwdriver. Uh, but anyway, we, we start to unpack it. You know, the styrofoam's everywhere, like a million parts and screws and all the shit. And we're getting into fights because Sasha's like, hey, I'll listen. I'll listen to what you, you, you know, whatever you say and, and do it. And then she doesn't listen. It's super annoying. And she's like going ahead. I'm like, stop it. And then I'm trying to read the, you know, there's, a, there's like Ikea type instructions where there's just like a diagram. And it's really hard to understand. You're like really focusing on like which side is the left side, which side is the right side. And I'm trying to focus and my eyesight's not as good as it was. And she's like pulling the thing away from me. Be like, I can see it. I know what to do already. Your, your eyesight's not good. And she might be right. In fact, she was right a couple of times, but it's like, she hasn't done these a hundred times and she doesn't know that like, it's way more important to slow down and just make sure you don't make an error than it is to be creative. This is not like some, you know, this is like formulaic thing, start to finish. And she, she and I are fighting and I'm just like, get my wits out. I'm like, stop it. Just give me a minute. Stop telling me and argue with me 
just let me friggin' look at this. I'm like, I can't deal with this. I throw up the thing. I'm like, you, I just can't deal. So I'd like catch a breath, come back in, we make up, do a little bit more. And she was good. She did like literally half of it. I mean, she was screwing the stuff in. We had two, like with this other shitty screwdriver. So we we're able to work together. And the next day, you know, she came home. I said, you want me to do, finish it while you're at school or not? She said, no, no, no I want to do it. So she comes home the second day. We didn't get any fights really. We got the rest of it done. Finished it right before her bedtime. It was very satisfying. And I was just a, a good project. And I felt like it was satisfying for me because I'm not like that handy. So just doing that was good. It was very satisfying for her. She had all the confidence in the world. I was totally, I wasn't as bad as Heather, like sure that we'd screw it up, but I was wary that we might screw it up. And just, I realized like, you know, kids see something like that, a bunch of screws and a million parts and like sees it come together. Like that's like a, I don't know, to me, that's like psychologically, that's like an important thing. Like you can make stuff, you can put the parts together. And again, we're just talking about something that's like literally a diagram with instructions, but that shit was harder than, you know, she wasn't, it's harder than Ikea. I'll say that much, um, but we did it. And I was just very satisfied. Now she's very pleased with her desk. I mean, she, you know, she's just old enough to actually help. I remember she tried to help me a couple of years ago and it was like, it wasn't a help. It was the opposite. I had to like help her slow me down, but she actually sped it up. So um, that was cool. Anyway, I think that's all I really got. Not really uh, anything earth shattering, but uh, till next time.